Next Sunday, as I said, could be one of the greatest days at TFA. I was going through some old photographs this past week. Our daughter turned 36 on Wednesday, and I just have pain shoots through my back when I say that. 36. I really miss our children. I miss when they were little, when a little three-year-old would run up to me and want me to pick her up. You know, I can get nostalgic real quick. And then when she was at UA, she would make those impromptu calls. Um, hey, you want to meet at Books a Million? Yes, there used to be a Books a Million here. Or uh, Barnes & Noble for coffee. And I never turned her down. I'm just glad I wasn't a surgeon and had to tell them, you know, keep the patient sedated. I got to go have coffee with my daughter because I, I just, unless it was just I couldn't go, I have no regrets for hanging out with her. And, but I found a, a photo going through an old box of photos, a number of them that I handed out to people. Um, but this is a photo of one of the great moments here at our church. And uh, you'll recognize, there's, there's a, a few people you'll recognize in that photo. But that goes way, way back. That's when young Frank Cochran was on staff here. Um, and I don't know, if, do you know what this is about? Can you figure it out? Well, we're going to have another one sometime in not too distant future. Mortgage burning. That's what that can and the paper. We're about to have a fire in the church. We'll have fire in the church somehow. You know, uh, but uh, Marshall Abels and uh, John Gibson, Steve Whitehead, and Brother Raymond in the back, those were the original four board members when I came here. And this is uh, Robert Spence and Brother Nelson White, two former pastors that was here for that. And uh, Frank holds the microphone. And I can't remember what I did with that double-breasted suit. It's probably long been gone. But uh, what a great moment that was to burn the last existing mortgage on this property. But can I ask you something today, maybe a series of questions. Can we believe today, can we dare believe today that our best days are ahead of us? Can we believe that even with a sanctuary that has this many empty seats, can we believe that the best days of this church are ahead of us? It's a question, isn't it? Can we look forward, friends, to the goodness of the Lord, the power of God, the infilling of the third person of the Trinity, the endowment of power from on high in our lives, the same Holy Spirit that hovered over a chaotic creation in Genesis that brought order out of disorder? Can we believe that he's going to do something greater in these last days? Can we reach for the things of God? And lay hold of that that is truly supernatural. That's not of men. Can we be done with cheap substitutes and superficial commitments and be truly and authentically committed to the Lord like never before? Can we believe today that God has destined his greatest work for us and for this church in the days ahead? I'm asking questions. Can we decide 
to give relief to our minds that are oversaturated with sound bites and photo ops and emotional decisions that masquerades as spirit-born fruit. Can we really come to a place to where we want our minds to be saturated with the Word of God? That's a question. Can we declare this morning that memories, like the one we showed up on the screen, are good for points of testimony? But may this generation declare, while we respect those memories, we refuse to live in the past. And we refuse to let anything keep us from discovering the dreams that God has for us right now. Can this generation stand up? And when I say this generation, I'm not talking about millennials or the X generation and the Y generation and we who are the baby boomers generation. We're all in this generation. You realize that. We're, we're all in this generation right now. Can we say collectively, we will never replace dreams yet to be realized by God by looking backward? But looking forward, why wait? Why should we wait for that? Why should we tarry? Why should we halt between opinions and options? Why not us? You've heard these questions. Why not us? Why not here and why not now? Why not we? And and I, I think I speak for most people in this room. Why not we who believe in the atoning death of Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the atoning death of Christ? That is, a, that is hard to imagine that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If we truly believe that and believe that his resurrection broke the fear of death and broke the chains that held people captive, why not we experience the power of God if we believe that? Is there anything greater to believe in? You know, there were some of us that was here yesterday. We had five prayer rooms going, handing out backpacks. And one of the, one of the families we had in front of us, and isn't it so neat that Grace Church, Vineyard Church, I don't know if anybody was, was here from First Weston, but I happened to be sitting next to the pastor of Grace Church and of Grace Talmage. We, we were doing one of the prayer rooms. And this one precious lady was telling us her need for prayer. And then we said, is there anything else? And she had a teenage daughter sitting next to her. And she says, she looked at her and says, she's having trouble believing. She was raised in church. Now she doesn't know if all of this is true or not. I know none of you have ever had that thought cross your mind. But we had a chance to really minister to a 10th grader about faith in the Lord and that it's not a fairy tale, it's a reality. And if you're not going to follow him, who are you going to follow? Is there anything that gives people more hope than the gospel? Is there anything, any ideology that we can offer to people outside of the gospel that will answer the questions in our life? I'm asking, I'm asking us today these questions so that we can come to an answer about this question. What is driving my life? What is driving my life? Are my grandchildren driving my life? Are my children, my vocation? What's driving my life? 
I don't know if you heard the story about Michael Phelps. Anyone here hear, hear the story of how Michael Phelps made, made his turnaround? Anyone see that? Well, you need to... Boy, I was sitting there when the guy was out of control. He was thinking suicidal thoughts. He was, had developed a drinking problem. He just was in no man's land. And a friend of his... Uh, this, this was just a phenomenal story. Ray Lewis, the Ray Lewis that played for the Baltimore Ravens and, and the Evil Empire, the University of Miami, called him up and said, Michael, this is, this is when character steps in. This is when you decide to fight when your back is against the wall. You can't give up. And he, along with friends, convinced him to go to a rehab place in Phoenix, Arizona. But Ray Lewis gave him a book and told him to read this book while you're in rehab. And two days in the book, he calls Ray Lewis up and says, My mind is spinning. I can't even grasp what I'm reading. I just know that it's awakened something in me. And I'm just I'm overwhelmed by what I'm reading. The book was The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. Now, I was as surprised that Ray Lewis would give that book to him as I was that it was impacted. And Michael Phelps told him later, says, you saved my life. He says, no, I didn't save your life. He found purpose where he needed to find purpose, and that was through the power of God. It rescued, and now you're swimming in the Olympics. I'm talking about what gives you your heart-pounding excitement about life. It should be Jesus. It should be his presence. I'm talking about really all in, not next Sunday, today. Next week we'll have that. We'll have it with Taylor Morton. We'll, you know, walk on safety at Alabama, you know, just has an incredible testimony. But sports, sports is kind of like good analogies for some of these things. And, and we're not the one to use analogies. Paul mentioned the analogy of long-distance running and the Greek contest games that was played that was already going on in the Colosseums. He was talking about preparation, and you have to be a disciplined athlete. You have to be all in. So an athlete has to be fully committed to their sport if they're going to succeed. The Olympics are going on right now. Those people just didn't arrive at the Olympics. They've been working hard. They've been fully committed to what they're doing. When Kelly and I decided to do a, a triathlon together, really and truly we had more ambition than we had since when he signed up for that. But the assigned us, we was doing team in action. It was a charity for leukemia. And, and uh, we had to buy our bikes and buy our wetsuits and all of this. But the assigned us a triathlon, an Ironman triathlon athlete, his name was Will, to coaches. And I barely made one lap in the YMCA pool. And I pulled the goggles off and looked at him panting. I says, is it hopeless? <laughs> oh, no, it's not hopeless. I can help you. He pushed us. And it's kind of discouraging when you finally get up to about 700, 800 meters of swimming and you realize that when you go to Memphis, you're going to swim twice that long in an open lake. 1,500 meters. There's more than once we looked at each other and says, we're crazy. Why do we sign up for this? 
But he coached us through cycling. He coached us through the whole thing. And he didn't have to be there, Brenda, when we did that, did he? He just was assigned to us. But we got to Memphis, and he shows up. And we're in the line of about 1,300 people going into the water about three or five seconds apart from each other. And our plan was, was shot right at the start. I was going to stay with Kelly so that I could encourage her when she, when she hit the wall, so to speak. But she was 400 people ahead of me with her number. But he was walking with her, and he was telling her something that he later came back and told me. As I got closer to when, when they called me to go, he was telling her this. He says, you will not get there in a hurry. You have to pace yourself in this swim. And when they told her go, all that went out the window. Because I watched her running down the ramps, diving in, and like she was an Olympic swimmer, I go, oh, no. But he came back and said the same thing to me. What, what was he saying? This is a marathon. This is, this is an endurance test. It is not a speed test. And isn't that what the Bible talks about, our journey? It's not a sprint. It's a long-distance run. It's about pacing ourselves. It is not about how fast you go. It's just a matter that you keep going. There's an example for us in the Bible that I want us to look at. And, and there's all kinds of examples. I could fill up the whole message with examples of people being all in and committed to one thing. But why not go to the perfect example, right? Who's the perfect example? It's Jesus, of course. I'm going to take you to Hebrews chapter 12. This is a great picture. Chapter 11 is all about people of faith and how they lived out their faith. And all of these great people who were examples of faith. And he gets to Hebrews chapter 12 and talks about that there's, there's a crowd of witnesses, a great cloud, a crowd like they're seated in a coliseum. It's a picture of a coliseum. It's a picture of people who have finished their race, finished their journey, and has now taken their place in that arena of witnesses. There's Daniel, there's Abraham, there's, there's Isaiah, there's Deborah, there's Priscilla, there's men and women in that arena that have already finished. There's, my parents have taken their place in, in that cloud of witnesses. And he said, because you see all of those who finished their journey, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in a place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. There's the example. There's the perfect example. 
And let me just hit the high points for you. Get rid of the weights. When you, anyone who's done long distance running, you know, we swam a mile, we bicycled 25 miles and ran five kilometers. That was our triathlon. And we made it without emergency services. But when you're doing that, and when you're running, you try to have the lightest shoes, the, the thinnest outfit, the lightest that you can be so that you're not encumbered in any way. And this is what he's saying, is get rid of the weights that hold you back from running the way God wants you to run. Get rid of them. And he says, be especially alert to the things that trip you up the most often and focus on getting that out of your life. And then he says, run. Run with endurance. Run with perseverance. Keep going. We should never need pampering and consoling when it's a battle of faith. We need to run. We do this in one way. It's keeping our eyes on Jesus. Keeping, this is what he says. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the ultimate champion, who is the faith champion, the originator of faith, the perfecter of faith. And he says he endured the cross He got through the pain because he was looking beyond the pain and saw the joy of what the cross would do to liberate people's lives. And he said it carried him through to seeing victory for mankind. He even discounted and disregarded the humiliation and the shame, the utter and complete shame of that kind of death. He dismissed it. It was not something that was going to keep him from going through. It was probably maybe the most challenging thing of that kind of death is for him to disregard the shame of it. He is the example of enduring the ill effects, sinful people is what he says, who endured from the, the, the hostility of sinful people, those who were against him. Should we be surprised when we're trying to live for God that some people are going to be forget, uh, against us? If we're going to be for Jesus, there's just going to be people against us. Isn't that what he said? Let's take a look at at Jesus. Look at his his example. Now, mind you, listen. His example, listen. His example is not for us to mimic. Because we can never mimic that example. His example means this. That he lives inside of us. And when we lack self-motivation, we ought to trust that he motivates us. Right? That in our souls, he motivates us to keep going. I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 here. Very little stories here. We're just going to focus. Can you do that with me? Amen. I'll say amen to myself. Amen, pastor. You just preach it. Paul, writing a second time to the people in Corinth, focused on chapters 8 and 9 on giving And he was telling these people pretty much this. You need to be all in when it comes to giving. You need to understand the benefits of being generous and being steadfast and faithful. The importance of trust. 
the praise that ascends to heaven when we're obedient to God and we're obedient in giving and supporting ministries. That that causes praise to ascend to God. And he gives this example in chapter 8, verse 9, of, of Christ being an example of generosity and giving. I'm reading this out of the message. You are familiar with the genera- generosity of our master, Jesus Christ. Rich as he was, he gave it all away for us. In one stroke, he became poor and we became rich. It might read a little different in what you're reading, but the gist is the same, isn't it? The, the love that Christ had for us was a love that necessitated him emptying himself of everything, of everything, all, not most, but everything, refusing to lay hold of divine attributes that were within his reach. But he gave up everything. On the very day that Gabriel visited a teenage virgin in a mountainous village, insignificant mountain village of Nazareth, and said, Mary, you have found favor with God. You're going to conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name of Yeshua, Joshua, the Lord of salvation. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And his kingdom will have no end. He will take charge of David's legacy and David's kingdom. And I know in her mind, when she heard that, she said, I'm giving birth to the Messiah. And right then, the day of that conception, the Son of God emptied himself of everything and descended into a microscopic existence. In a flash, he reduced himself to an embryo. He did this willingly. He was so rich and full of everything that's good in heaven, and he gave it up to come here. Amazing, isn't it? On that very day, the Son of God gave everything, and it was pre-planned. Way before Adam and Eve had their infamous fall and brought the disease of sin into the souls of mankind, God had already decided, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit had already planned that this would be the remedy, that she would give birth to a son, which we celebrate Christmas. And for 30 years, no doubt she was the world. She was, he, he was her life. She knew She had other children, but she knew. She knew what he was about. She had in her mind. I'm sure she loved her other children. And she thought the world of them, but that firstborn created the world. And when John immersed him in the River Jordan, he grew up as a submissive son. He took care of his mother. He never lived for himself. He was always living for for others. And when John immersed him in the Jordan River, we're talking about at Jericho, and if you've ever seen the Jordan River, it's really nice up at the front, up at the top, 
coming out of the Sea of Galilee. That's where everybody that goes on a trip to Israel gets baptized. It's beautiful. It's extremely cold. I baptize people right there in that spot. It's, it's made. It's got ramps. And I baptized four people, and I couldn't feel my legs when I got out of the water. But you go down to Jericho, and it's muddy. It's murky. It's dark. And isn't it just fitting that Jesus came up out of the murky water and went up into a mountain to take on the prince of darkness, to do hand-to-hand combat with him, totally emptying himself of any advantages, and would do battle with one that he knew well. Because they knew each other. They knew each other well. In their pre-forms that they were in, they knew each other. And the enemy threw everything he could at the human instincts that Jesus refused to give in to. And with every temptation, Jesus knocked him to the mat with the word of God. I wonder what Mary was thinking those 40 days where Jesus, his whereabouts wasn't known. Man, that's a long time to not know where you're, even your adult son is at. But he's up there all by himself. I think she was maybe thinking, just in my mind, that this is the start. This must be the start. This is not like him to be this far, this long away. And maybe in her mind, she knew that it was on. And shortly after that, his newly recruited 12 men arrive at a wedding in Canaan of Galilee where she's at. Might have been a, a relative or a friend. This is a neighboring town from Nazareth. So it, it could have been a relative or a friend having his or her wedding. And they're all at the wedding. And you know what happens. She walks up to him and says, we've got a problem here. They've ran out of wine. She already, she's already thinking, if there's anybody in this wedding party that can fix this, it's him. And he seemed resistant to that, didn't he? But she knew it was on because she didn't try to convince him. She just turned to the servers and says, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. He never did anything. He said he never did anything because someone else asked him to. He only did what he heard the Father give him the green light, right? And through the power of the Holy Spirit, undoubtedly he got prompted by the Father to do something. And at that moment, he saved the wedding celebration. He saved the reception. But in reality, he was saving more than a reception, wasn't he? He was on track to save the world. It's difficult for us to fathom some of the things about the Lord. The intensity in the air that night that he had that last Passover meal with his disciples and he held that cup and that unleavened bread in his hands and, and he said something that threw them completely off balance. He said, I've earnestly, I think one translation, I've earnestly desired to have this Passover with you before I suffer. And we may think the thing that threw him off was the word suffer. It probably did. I really have been looking forward 
to this. It's kind of hard to fathom, isn't it? But the wording that he used really threw them off because the noun that is the subject comes from the verb that's right behind it. And this is, it would be an awkward translation, but this is how you could translate it. The thing that I've craved, I'm craving now in this Passover. It is an intensive, it's like a desire, something you desired intently. It even is translated coveting in some regard. He said, I've coveted this moment I've coveted. I'm coveting the opportunity right now to share this meal with you because he's telling them, this is it. This is my mission. This is what I came to do. I came to lay down my life. The craving, the reality, this is why I came. This is my mission. Now, Mary knew what it meant. She knew what it meant. I think she never got it out of her mind, the image of Simeon 30 years prior walking up to her and Joseph as she held the infant Jesus in her arms in the temple courtyard and this old man walks up and just takes the child out of Mary's arms, looks up to heaven and begins to praise the sovereign God for being faithful to his promise because he had heard in prayer the Lord speak to him saying, you will see the Messiah with your own eyes before you die. And he went to the temple courtyard, prompted by the Holy Spirit, said, he's there. He's there. And he walks up knowing that the baby in Mary's arms is Messiah, and he holds that child, and he thanks God that he can now die in peace. Because he had seen the face. It's just a baby. But he knew that there was hope in that child's face. That he would fulfill the promises of God. But Simeon doesn't look at Joseph. He looks straight at Mary. And he says this to her. This child will cause the fall and rising of many in Israel. And he will reveal the thoughts of many hearts. And a sword will pierce your own soul. And I think that drama of Christ being arrested and was beaten, that that sword was piercing her soul. And she knew that that prophecy of Simeon was finally coming to pass. You are, we are familiar with the generosity of Jesus, are we not? That he gave it all away. As rich as he was, he gave it all away so that in one stroke, he would become poor and we would become rich, rich in grace. He gave it all away, totally, totally, so that we could be his children, so that we could be the children of God, Galatians 4 says this. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that they who were under the law might receive the adoption of children. That we would become God's adopted children. Some translation says, at the very right time, 
in the history of mankind, Gabriel announces to Mary, it's on. Isn't it interesting when you look at the history around the, the promised land, 400 years after Alexander the Great has died and his great Greek empire has been divided up into four parts among generals. 400 years. And the language that is still the most preferred language of script is Greek. And it's absolutely by nothing as close to it as the most versatile language to express exactly four different words for love. All kinds of tenses and moods and all of the, the different verb, everything that you could imagine, you can express exactly how you feel with the Greek language. We can say we love our wife and we love ice cream. It's a, I hope it's a different kind of love. But the Greek language, and this is why we got the New Testament written in, so we, we know exactly what Jesus was meaning when he wrote, when he spoke. And then we have the Roman occupation that had perfected the Persian, Persian Greek mode of killing that terrorized people, and that was crucifixion. Because early on, they would just behead people and fasten them up on a stake. Well, the Romans perfected it to the ultimate suffering instead of beheading the people, which was instant death. They just let them hang for days and experience an excruciating death. Why was that necessary? Because Jesus had to take on the curse that was upon all of us. Curses everyone that hangs on a tree. When it says he gave everything away, he gave everything away. Brandon, if you guys can come. There's two parts to this altar call this morning. One is for us to fully surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Call it rededication, call it whatever you want. But he gave everything up for you and me. And I think it's time for us to give everything up for him. Total consecration, total commitment, total surrender. It's just, you know, somebody asked me last Sunday. Someone walked up to me in the foyer and said, what, what does all in mean? I said, well, I'll tell you what it means to me. It means that everybody who this is their church is doing something within ministry. Everybody has found a niche. Everybody has a place where they're doing ministry. And he says, well, what, you know, this is a young man that hasn't been here very much. And he says, well, what do you think keeps us from experiencing that? I said, distractions. That's an easy answer. Busyness of life, but also the distractions of our own lives, where we maybe discount the possibilities that God has for us. I want to tell you, at, at the age of 65, I believe my best days are ahead. Not for my back, but I believe spiritually my, my best days are ahead. I believe that. I believe our best days for Brenda and I are ahead, whether we're pastoring here or not. I just believe that God's best for us is ahead of us. I think there's people in this room that think that their best is in, in the rearview mirror. 
And I feel sorry for you. There's more to life than that. And it begins by saying, I'm not going to go by my standard. I want to go by his standard. I want to make my decision based on what he says, not on how I think. Ravi Zacharias says this, this generation thinks with their feelings. And, and I forget how the whole quote, but he says, this generation is not really paying attention to the information that's in front of them. Go on by feelings. The second part of this altar is these cards. To come and get, there's stacks of cards. There's five to a stack. Every one of us, take a stack. And ask God to prompt you to who you give it to. That's our altar call this morning. Would you stand with me?